Donovan Pasha and Some People of Egypt by Gilbert Parker Volume 1 Volume 1 While the lamp holds out to burn the price of the grindstone and the drum the desertion of Maham Selim and the Reef of Norman's Wool Volume 2 Fielding had an orderly the eye of the needle a treaty of peace at the mercy of Tiberius all the world's mad Volume 3 The Man at the Wheel a Tyrant and a Lady Volume 4 a young lion of Dedan he would not be denied the flower of the flock the light of other days introduction. To the foreword of this book I have practically nothing to add. It describes how the book was planned, and how at last it came to be written. The novel, The Weavers, of which it was the herald, as one might say, was published in 1907. The reception of Donovan Pasha convinced me beyond peradventure, that the step I took in enlarging my field of work was as wise in relation to my art as in its effect upon my mind, temperament, and faculty for writing. I knew Egypt by study quite as well as I knew the dominion of Canada, the difference being, of course, that the instinct for the life of Canada was part of my very being itself, but there are great numbers of people who live their lives for fifty or seventy or eighty years in a country, and have no real instinct for understanding. There are numberless Canadians who do not understand Canada, Englishmen who know nothing of England, and Americans who do not understand the United States. If it is so that I have some instinct for the life of Canada, and have expressed it to the world with some accuracy and fidelity, it is apparent that the capacity for understanding could not be limited absolutely to one environment. That I understood Canada could not be established by the fact that I had spent my boyhood there but only by the fact that some inner vision permitted me to see it as it really was. That inner vision, however, if it was anything at all was not in blinders, seeing only one section of the life of the world. Relatively it might see more deeply, more intimately in that place where habit of life had made the man familiar with all its detail, but the same vision turned elsewhere to fields where study and sympathy played a devoted part, could not fail to see, though the workman's craft, which made material the vision, might fail. The reception given Donovan Pasha convinced me that neither the vision nor the craftsmanship had wholly failed, whatever the degree of success which had been reached. Anglo-Egyptians approved the book. Its pages passed through the hands of an Englishman who had done over twenty years' service in the British Army in Egypt and in official positions in the Egyptian administration, and I do not think that he made six corrections in the whole three hundred pages. He had himself a great gift for both music and painting. He was essentially exacting where any literature touching Egypt was concerned, but I am glad to think that, whatever he thought of the book as fiction, he did not find it necessary to grant absolution as to the facts and the details of incidents and character and life portrayed in Donovan Pasha. Who the original of Donovan Pasha was I shall never say, but he was real. There is, however, in the House of Commons today a young and active politician once in the Egyptian service, and who bears a most striking resemblance to the purely imaginary portrait which Mr. Talbot Kelly, the artist, drew of the Dickie Donovan of the book. This young politician, with his experience in the diplomatic service, is in manner, disposition, capacity, and in his neat, fine, and alert physical frame, the very image of Dickie Donovan, as in my mind I perceived him and when I first saw him I was almost thunderstruck, because he was to me Dickie Donovan come to life. There was nothing Dickie Donovan did or said or saw or heard which had not its counterpart in actual things in Egypt. The germ of most of the stories was got from things told me, or things that I saw, heard of, 
or experienced in Egypt itself. The first story of the book, While the Lamp Holds Out to Burn, was suggested to me by an incident which I saw at a certain village on the Nile, which I will not name. Suffice it to say that the story in the main was true. Also the chief incident of the story, called the price of the grindstone, and the drum is true. The Muhammad Seti of that story was the servant of a friend of mine, and he did in life what I made him do in the tale. On the reef of Norman's Woe, which more than one journal singled out as showing what extraordinary work was being done in Egypt by a handful of British officials, had its origin in something told me by my friend Sir John Rogers, who at one time was at the head of the sanitary department of the government of Egypt. I could take the stories one by one, and show the seeds from which this little plantation of fiction sprang, but I will not go further than to refer to a story called Fielding Had an Orderly, the idea of which was contained in the experience of a British official whose courage was as cool as his wit, and both were extremely dangerous weapons, used at times against those who were opposed to him. When I read a book like Said the Fisherman, however, with its wonderfully intimate knowledge of Oriental life and the thousand nuances which only the born Orientalist can give, I look with tempered pride upon Donovan Pasha. Still I think that it caught— and held some phases of Egyptian life which the author of Said the Fisherman might perhaps miss, since the observation of every artist has its own idiosyncrasy, and what strikes one observer will not strike another. A forward. It is now twelve years since I began giving to the public tales of life and lands well known to me. The first of them were drawn from Australia and the islands of the Southern Pacific, where I had lived and roamed in the middle and late eighties. They appeared in various English magazines, and were written in London far from the scenes which suggested them. None of them were written on the spot, as it were. I did not think then, and I do not think now, that this was perilous to their truthfulness. After many years of travel and homestaying observation I have found that all worth remembrance, the salient things and scenes, emerge clearly out of myriad impressions, and become permanent in mind and memory. Things so emerging are typical at least, and probably true. Those tales of the far south were given out with some prodigality. They did not appear in book form, however, for, at the time I was sending out these Antipodean sketches, I was also writing, far from the scenes where they were laid, a series of Canadian tales, many of which appeared in the Independent of New York, in the National Observer, edited by Mr. Henley, and in the Illustrated London News. By accident, and on the suggestion of my friend Mr. Henley, the Canadian tales Pierre and his people were published first, with the result that the stories of the Southern Hemisphere were withheld from publication, though they have been privately printed and duly copyrighted. Some day I may send them forth, but meanwhile I am content to keep them in my own care. Moved always by deep interest in the very manifestations of life in different portions of the empire, five or six years ago I was attracted to the island of Jersey in the Channel Sea, by the likeness of the origin of her people with that of the French Canadians. I went to live at St. Helier's for a time, and there wrote a novel called The Battle of the Strong. Nor would it be thought strange that, having visited another and newer sphere of England's influence, Egypt to wit, in 1889, I should then determine that, when I could study the country at leisure, I should try to write of the life there, so full of splendor and of primitive simplicity of mystery and guilt, of cruel indolence and beautiful industry, of tyranny and devoted slavery, of the high elements of a true democracy and the shameful practices of a false autocracy, 
all touched off by the majesty of an ancient charm, the nobility of the remotest history. The years went by, and four times visiting Egypt, at last I began to write of her. That is now five years ago. From time to time the stories which I offer to the public in this volume were given forth. It is likely that the old Anglo-Egyptian and the historical student may find some anachronisms and other things to criticize. But the anachronisms are deliberate, and even as in writing of Canada and Australia, which I know very well, I have here, perhaps, sacrificed superficial exactness while trying to give the more intimate meaning and spirit. I have never thought it necessary to apologize for this disregard of photographic accuracy that may be found in my notebooks, and I shall not begin to do so now. I shall be sufficiently grateful if this series of tales does no more than make ready the way for the novel of Egyptian life on which I have been working for some years. It is an avant courier. I hope, however, that it may be welcomed for its own sake. G.P. Note, a glossary will be found at the end of the volume while the lamp holds out to burn. There is a town on the Nile which Fielding Bay called Hasha, meaning, Heaven forbid! He loathed inspecting it. Going up the Nile, he would put off visiting it till he came down. Coming down, he thanked his fates if accident carried him beyond it. Convenient accidents sometimes did occur. A murder at one of the villages below it, asking his immediate presence. A telegram from his minister at Cairo, requiring his return. Or a very low Nile, when Hasha suddenly found itself a mile away from the channel and there was no good place to land. So it was that Hasha, with little inspection, was the least reputable and almost the dirtiest town on the Nile. For even in those far-off days the official Englishman had his influence, especially when Kubar Pasha was behind him. Kubar had his good points. There were certain definite reasons, however, why Fielding Bay shrank from visiting Hasha. Donovan Pasha saw something was wrong from the first moment Hasha was mentioned. On a particular day they were lying below at another village on the Amenhotep. Hasha was the next place marked red on the map, and that meant inspection. When Dickie Donovan mentioned Hasha, Fielding Bay twisted a shoulder and walked nervously up and down the deck. He stayed here for hours, to wait for the next post, he said serious matters expected from headquarters. He appeared not to realize that letters would get to Hasha by rail as quickly as by the Amenhotep. Every man has a weak spot in his character, a subrosa, as it were, in his business of life, and Dickie fancied he had found Fielding Bays. While they waited, Fielding made a pretense of working hard, for he really was conscientious, sending his orderly for the Mamur, magistrate, and the Amda, head of a village, and holding fatuous conferences turning the hose on the local dairymen and butchers and date growers, who came with bakshish in kind, burying his nose in official papers, or sending for Hallgate, the Yorkshire engineer, to find out what the run would be to the next stopping place beyond Hasha. Twice he did this, which was very little like Fielding Bay. The second time, when Hallgate came below to his engine, Dickie was there playing with a farshoot dog. We don't stop at Hasha, then? Dickie asked and let the farshoot fasten on his leggings. Hallgate swung round and eyed Dickie curiously, a queer smile at his lips. Not if Governor can help, I give you my word, sir, answered Hallgate. Fielding was affectionately called, the governor, by his subordinates and friends. We all have our likes and dislikes, rejoined Dickie casually, and blew smoke in the eyes of the farshoot. 
I, Avi, seen places that bad. But Hasha has tossed of its own in Guvner's mouth, my life aunt. Never can tell when a thing will pall on the taste. Hasha's turn with the governor now, eh? rejoined Dicky. Dicky's way of getting information seemed guileless, and Hallgate opened his basket as wide as he knew. Turin didst the sway. Hallgate talked broadly to Dicky always, for Dicky had told him of his aunt, Lady Carmichael, who lived near Halifax in Yorkshire. Turin, I'll warrant! It be Reglar's kitchen fire, this Hasha business, for three years, ever sin I've been scrappin' mud o' Nile River. That was a nasty road they had over the cemetery three years ago, the governor against the lot, from Mamur to Wekeel. Hallgate's eyes flashed, and he looked almost angrily down at Dicky, whose hand was between the teeth of the playful farshoot. Dost think, Noah, the canst not think that governor be feared o' Hasha Fook. Thinks the a man that told them all, a thousand there, that he'd hang on nearest tree the force that disobeyed him, thinks the that governor's lost his nerve by that. The governor never loses his nerve, Hallgate, said Dicky, smiling and offering a cigar. There's such a thing as a man being afraid to trust himself where he's been in a mess, lest he hit out, and doesn't want to. Hallgate, being excited, was in a fit state to tell the truth if he knew it, which was what Dicky had worked for, but Hallgate only said, It beant fear, and it beant milk o' human kindness. It be sort o' thing a man gets. I had it once I Bradford, in Little Cornish Street. I saw a face look out o window o who's by Tinsmith's shop, and that face was like hell's picture eye. Twas a Kiliagus face that. I never again could pass that house. Twas a woman's face. Horrible twas, and sore sad and fluted I were, for t face was like a lass I loved when I were a lad. I should think it was something like that, answered Dicky his eyes wandering over the peninsula beyond which lay Hasha. Summit, I'll be sure, answered Hallgate. And ma word aunt. Ah, Jan Coombs orderly why post for governor. Now it be Hasha, or it be not Hasha, it be time for steam up. Hallgate turned to his engine as Dicky mounted the stairs and went to Fielding's cabin, where the orderly was untying a handkerchief overflowing with letters. As Fielding read his official letters his face fell more and more. When he had read the last, he sat for a minute without speaking, his brow very black. There was no excuse for pushing past Hasha. He had not been there for over a year. It was his duty to inspect the place. He had a conscience. There was time to get to Hasha that afternoon. With an effort he rose, hurried along the deck, and called down to Hallgate. Full steam to Hasha! Then, with a quick command to the Reese, who was already at the wheel, he lighted a cigar and joining Dicky Donovan, began to smoke and talk furiously. But he did not talk of Hasha. At sunset the Amenhotep drew into the bank by Hasha, and from the deck, Fielding Bay saluted the Mamur, the Amda and his own subordinates, who, bunning up their coats as they came, hurried to the bank to make salams to him. Behind them, at a distance, came villagers, a dozen gaffers armed with neighbors of Domwood, and a brace of well-mounted, badly-dressed policemen, with seats like a monkey on a stick. The conferences with the Mamur and Amda were short, in keeping with the temper of, Fielding sought it, and long into the night Dickie lay and looked out of his cabin window to the fires on the banks, where sat Mohammed Seti the servant, the orderly, and some attendant gaffers, who, feasting on the remains of the Effendi's supper, kept watch. For Hasha was noted for its robbers. 
It was even rumored that the egregious Salamlik Pasha, with the sugar plantation nearby. Trousers. Dicky called him when he saw him on the morrow, because of the elephantine breeks he wore, was not averse to sending his Abyssinian slaves through the sugarcane to waylay and rob, and worse, maybe. By five o'clock next day the inspection was over. The streets had been swept for the excellency, which is to say sought it, the first time in a year. The prison had been cleaned of visible horrors, the first time in a month. The last time it was ordered there had been a riot among the starving, infested prisoners. Earth had been thrown over the protruding bones of the deer lamented dead in the cemetery. The water of the ablution places in the mosque had been changed. The ragged policemen had new putties. The courbashes of the tax-gatherers were hid in their yellicks. The egregious pasha wore a greasy smile, and the submuter, as he conducted fielding. Whom God preserve and honor! Through the prison and through the hospital, where goat's milk had been laid on for this especial day, smirked gently through the bazaar above his Parisian waistcoat. But fielding, as he rode on Salamlik Pasha's gorgeous black donkey from Assi out, with its crimson trappings, knew what proportion of improvement this hanky-panky, as Dickie called it, bore to the condition of things at the last inspection. He had spoken little all day, and Dickie had noticed that his eye was constantly turning here and there, as though looking for an unwelcome something or somebody. At last the thing was over, and they were just crossing the canal, the old Bar el Yusef, which cuts the town in twain as the river Abana does Damascus, when Dickie saw nearing them a heavily laden boat, a cross between a Thames houseboat and an Italian gondola, being drawn by one poor rawbone, rawbone in truth, for there was on each shoulder a round red place, made raw by the unsheathed ropes used as harness. The beast's sides were scraped as a tree is barked, and the hindquarters gored as though by a harrow. Dickie was riding with the mamour of the district. Fielding was a distance behind with trousers and the muter. Dickie pulled up his donkey, got off and ran towards the horse, pale with fury, for he loved animals better than men, and had wasted his strength beating donkey boys with the sticks they used on their victims. The boat had now reached a point opposite the mutery, its stopping place, and the raw bone, reeking with sweat and blood, stood still and trembled, its knees shaking with the strain just taken off them, its head sunk nearly to the ground. Dickie had hardly reached the spot when a figure came running to the poor whaler with a quick stumbling motion. Dickie drew back in wonder, for never had he seen eyes so painful as these that glanced from the tortured beast to himself, staring, bulbous, bloodshot, hunted eyes, but they were blue, a sickly, faded blue, and they were English. Dickie's hand was, on his pistol, for his first impulse had been to shoot the raw bone, but it dropped away in sheer astonishment at the sight of this strange figure in threadbare dirty clothes and riding breeches made by shearing the legs of a long pair, cut with an unsteady hand, for the edges were jagged and uneven, and the man's bare leg showed above the cast-off putties of a policeman. The coat was an old khaki jacket of a gippy soldier, and being scant of buttons, doubtful linen showed beneath. Above the hook nose, once aristocratic, now vulture-like and shrunken like that of Ramesses in his glass case at Gizeh, was a tarbush tilting forward over the eyes, nearly covering the forehead. The figure must have been very tall once, but it was stooped now, though the height was still well above medium. Hunted, haunted, ravaged and lost, was the face, and the long gray mustache, covering the chin almost, seemed to cover an immeasurable depravity. 
Dickie took it all in at a glance, and wondered with a bitter wonder, for this was an Englishman, and behind him and around him, though not very near him, were Arabs, Sudanese, and Fellaheen, with sneering yet apprehensive faces. As Dickie's hand dropped away from his pistol, the other shot out trembling, graceful, eager fingers, the one inexpressibly gentlemanly thing about him. Give it to me, quick, he said, and he threw a backward glance towards the approaching group, Fielding, the egregious Pasha, and the rest. Dickie did not hesitate. He passed the pistol over. The lost one took the pistol, cocked it, and held it to the head of the whaler, which feebly turned to him in recognition. Goodbye, old man, he said and fired. The horse dropped, kicked, struggled once or twice, and was gone. If you know the right spot, there's hardly a kick, said the lost one, and turned to face the Pasha, who had whipped his donkey forward on them, and sat now livid with rage before the two. He stood speechless for a moment, for his anger had forced the fat of his neck up into his throat. But Dickie did not notice the Pasha. His eye was fixed on Fielding Bay, and the eye of Fielding Bay was on the lost one. All at once Dickie understood why it was that Fielding Bay had shrunk from coming to Hasha. Fielding might have offered many reasons, but this figure before them was the true one. Trouble, pity, anxiety, pride, all were in Fielding's face. Because the lost one was an Englishman, and the race was shamed and injured by this outcast? Not that alone. Fielding had the natural pride of his race, but this look was personal. He glanced at the dead horse, at the scarred sides, the raw shoulders, the corrugated haunches, he saw the pistol in the lost one's hand, and then, as a thread of light steals between the black trees of a jungle, a light stole across Fielding's face for a moment. He saw the lost one hand the pistol back to Dickie and fix his debauched blue eyes on the Pasha. These blue eyes did not once look at Fielding, though they were aware of his presence. Son of a dog, said the Pasha, and his fat forefinger convulsively pointed to the horse. The lost one's eyes wavered a second, as though their owner had not the courage to abide the effect of his action, then they quickened to a point of steadiness, as a lash suddenly knots for a crack in the hand of a postillion. Swine! said the lost one into the Pasha's face, and his round shoulders drew up a little farther, so that he seemed more like a man among men. His hands fell on his hips as, in his mess, an officer with no pockets drops his knuckles on his waistline for a stand at ease. The egregious Salamlik Pasha stood high in favor with the Khedive. Was it not he who had suggested a tax on the earnings of the dancing girls, the Gazias, and did he not himself act as the first tax-gatherer? Was it not Salamlik Pasha also who whispered into the ear of the Mephedish that a birth tax and a burial tax should be instituted? And had he not seen them carried out in the muteries under his own supervision? Had he not himself made the Fellaheen pay thrice over for water for their onion fields? Had he not flogged an Arab to death with his own hand, the day before Fielding's and Dickie's arrival, and had he not tried to get this same Arab's daughter into his harem, this Salamlik Pasha? The voice of the lost one suddenly rose shrill and excited, and he shouted at the Pasha, Swine! 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 Kill your slaves with a kurbash if you like, but a bullet's the thing for a whaler, swine of a leper! The whole frame of the lost one was still, but the voice was shaking, querulous, half-hysterical. The eyes were lighted with a terrible excitement, the lips under the gray mustache twitched. 
The nervous slipshod dignity of carriage was in curious contrast to the disordered patchwork dress. The trouble on Fielding's face glimmered with a little ray of hope now. Dicky came over to him and was about to speak, but a motion of Fielding's hand stopped him. The hand said, Let them fight it out. In a paroxysm of passion, Salamlik Pasha called two Abyssinian slaves standing behind. This brother of a toad to prison, he said. The lost one's eyes sought Dicky like a flash. Without a word, and as quick as the tick of a clock, Dicky tossed over his pistol to the lost one, who caught it smoothly, turned it in his hand, and leveled it at the Abyssinians. No more of this damned nonsense, Pasha, said Fielding suddenly. He doesn't put a high price on his life, and you do on yours. I'd be careful. Steady, trousers, said Dicky in a soft voice, and smiled his girlish smile. Salamlik Pasha stared for a moment in black anger, then stuttered forth. Will you speak for a dog of a slave that his own country vomits out? Your mother was a slave of Darfur Pasha, answered Fielding in a low voice. Your father lost his life stealing slaves. Let's have no airs and graces. Dickie's eyes had been fixed on the lost one, and his voice now said in its quaint treble. Don't get into a perspiration. He's from where we get our bad manners, and he messes with us tonight, Pasha. The effect of these words was curious. Fielding's face was a blank surprise, and his mouth opened to say no, but he caught Dickie's look and the word was not uttered. The Pasha's face showed curious incredulity. Under the pallor of the lost ones a purplish flush crept, stayed a moment, then faded away, and left it paler than before. We've no more business, I think, Pasha, said Fielding brusquely, and turned his donkey towards the river. The Pasha salaamed without a word. His Abyssinian slaves helped him on his great white donkey, and he trotted away towards the palace, the trousers flapping about his huge legs. The lost one stood fingering the revolver. Presently he looked up at Dicky, and standing still, held out the pistol. Better keep it, said Dicky. I'll give you some peace for it tonight. Speak to the poor devil, Fielding, he added quickly, in a low tone. Fielding turned in his saddle. Seven's the hour he said and rode on. Thanks, you fellows, said the lost one, and walked swiftly away. As they rode to the Amenhotep Dicky did not speak, but once he turned round to look after the outcast, who was shambling along the bank of the canal. When Fielding and Dicky reached the deck of the Amenhotep, and Maham said he had brought refreshment, Dicky said, What did he do? Fielding's voice was constrained and hard. Cheated at cards. Dicky's lips tightened. Where? At Hong Kong. Officer? In the buffs. Dicky drew a long breath. He's paid the piper. Naturally. He cheated twice. Cheated twice. At cards. Dicky's voice was hard now. Who was he? Heatherby, Bob Heatherby. Bob Heatherby, Gad. Fielding, I'm sorry. I couldn't have guessed, old man. Mrs. Henshaw's brother. Fielding nodded. Dickie turned his head away, for Fielding was in love with Mrs. Henshaw, the widow of Henshaw of the Buffs. He realized now why Fielding loathed Hasha so. Forgive me for asking him to mess, Governor. Fielding laughed a little uneasily. Never mind. You see, it isn't the old scores only that bar him. He's been a sweep out here. Nothing he hasn't done. 
gone lower and lower and lower. Tax gatherer with a courbash for old Salamlik the beast. Panderer for the same. Sweep of the lowest sort. Dicky's eyes flashed. I say, Fielding, it would be rather strange if he hadn't gone down, down, down. A man that's cheated at cards never finds anybody to help him up, up, up. The chances are dead against him. But he stood up well today, eh? I suppose blood will tell at last in the very worst. And while the lamp holds out to burn, the vilest sinner may return. Hummed Dicky musingly. Then he added slowly. Fielding, fellows of that kind always flare up a bit according to Cavendish, just before the end. I've seen it once or twice before. It's the last clutch at the grass as they go slip, slip, slipping down. Take my word for it, Heather buys near the finish. I shouldn't wonder. Salamlik, the old leper, LL lay in wait for him. He'll get lost in the sugar cane one of these evenings soon. Couldn't we? Dicky paused. Fielding started, looked at Dicky intently, and then shook his head sadly. It's no good, Dicky. It never is. While the lamp holds out to burn, said Dicky, and lighted another cigarette. Precisely at seven o'clock Heatherby appeared. He had on a dress suit, brown and rusty, a white tie made of a handkerchief torn in two, and a pair of patent leather shoes, scraggy and cracked. Fielding behaved well, Dicky was amiable and attentive, and the dinner being ready to the instant, there was no waiting, there were no awkward pauses. No names of English people were mentioned, England was not named, nor Cairo, nor anything that English people abroad loved to discuss. The fella, the pasha, the Sudan were the only topics. Under Fielding's courtesy and Dicky's acute suggestions, Heather Bye's weakened brain awaked, and he talked intelligently, till the moment coffee was brought in. Then, as Maham said he retired, Heather Bye suddenly threw himself forward, his arms on the table, and burst into sobs. Oh, you fellows, you fellows, he said. There was silence for a minute, then he sobbed out again. It's the first time I've been treated like a gentleman by men that knew me, these fifteen years. It, it gets me in the throat. His body shook with sobs. Fielding and Dicky were uncomfortable, for these were not the sobs of a driveler or a drunkard. Behind them was the blank failure of a life, fifteen years of miserable torture, of degradation, of a daily descent lower into the pit, of the servitude of shame. When at last he raised his streaming eyes, Fielding and Dicky could see the haunting terror of the soul, at whose elbow, as it were, every man cried. You are without the pale. That look told them how Heatherby of the Buffs had gone from table d'hote to table d'hote of Europe, from town to town, from village to village, to make acquaintances who repulsed him when they discovered who he really was. Shady Heatherby, who cheated at cards. Once Fielding made as if to put a hand on his shoulder and speak to him, but Dicky intervened with a look. The two drank their coffee, Fielding a little uneasily, but yet in his face there was a new look of inquiry, of kindness, even of hope. Presently Dicky flashed a look and nodded towards the door, and Fielding dropped his cigar and went on deck, and called down to Hallgate the engineer. Get up steam, and make for Luxor. It's moonlight, and we're safe enough in this high Nile at Hallgate. Safe enough, or I'm a ditchman, said Hallgate. Then they talked in a low voice together. Down in the saloon, Dicky sat watching Heather by. At last the lost one raised his head again. It's worth more to me 
This night, then you fellows know, he said brokenly. That's all right, said Dicky. Have a cigar? He shook his head. It's come at the right time. I wanted to be treated like an Englishman once more, just once more. Don't worry. Take in a reef and go steady for a bit. The milk spilt, but there are other meadows. Dicky waved an arm up the river, up towards the Sudan. The lost one nodded, then his eyes blazed up and took on a hungry look. His voice suddenly came in a whisper. Gordon was a white man. Gordon said to me three years ago, Come with me, I'll help you on. You don't need to live if you don't want to. Most of us will get knocked out up there in the Sudan, Gordon said that to me. But there was another fellow with Gordon who knew me, and I couldn't face it. So I stayed behind here. I've been everything, anything, to that swine, Salamlik Pasha. But when he told me yesterday to bring him the daughter of the Arab he killed with his kurbash, I jibbed. I couldn't stand that. Her father had fed me more than once. I jibbed, by God, I jibbed. I said I was an Englishman, and I'd see him damned first. I said it, and I shot the horse, and I'd have shot him. What's that? There was a churning below. The Amenhotep was moving from the bank. She's going, the boat's going, said the lost one, trembling to his feet. Sit down, said Dicky, and gripped him by the arm. Where are you taking me? asked Heatherby, a strange, excited look in his face. Up the river. He seemed to read Dicky's thoughts, the clairvoyance of an overwrought mind. To, to Asun? The voice had a curious faraway sound. You shall go beyond Asun, said Dicky. To, to Gordon? Heatherby's voice was husky and indistinct. Yes, here's Fielding. He'll give you the tip. Sit down. Dicky gently forced him down into a chair. Six months later, a letter came to Dicky from an Egyptian officer, saying that Heatherby of the Buffs had died gallantly fighting in a sortie sent by Gordon into the desert. He had a lot of luck, mused Dicky as he read. They don't end that way as a rule. Then he went to Fielding, humming a certain stave from one of Watts's hymns. The price of the grindstone and the drum. He lived in the days of Ismail the Khedive and was familiarly known as the murderer. He had earned his name, and he had no repentance. From the roof of a hut in his native village of Manfalut he had dropped a grindstone on the head of Ebn Haran, who contended with him for the affections of Ahasa, the daughter of Halil the barber, and Ebn Haran's head was flattened like the cover of a pie. Then he had broken a cake of dura bread on the roof for the pigeons above him, and had come down grinning to the street where a hesitating mounted policeman fumbled with his weapon, and four gaffers waited for him with their nabots. Seti then had weighed his chances, had seen the avenging friends of Ebn Haran behind the gaffers, and therefore permitted himself to be marched off to the mutery. There the muter glared at him and had him loaded with chains and flung into the prison, where two hundred convicts arrayed themselves against myriad tribes which, killed individually, made a spot on the wall no bigger than a threepenny bit. The carnage was great, and though Seti was sleepless night after night it was not because of his crime. He found some solace, however, in provoking his fellow prisoners to assaults upon each other, and every morning he grinned as he saw the dead and wounded dragged out into the clear sunshine. The end to this came when the father of Seti, Abu Seti, went at night to the muter and said deceitfully, Effendi, by the mercy of heaven I have been spared even to this day. 
For is it not written in the Quran that a man shall render to his neighbor what is his neighbor's? What should Abu Sedi do with ten fedans of land, while the servant of Allah, the Effendian Seiji, lives? What is honestly mine is eight fedans, and the rest, by the grace of God, is thine, O Effendi. Every fedan he had he had honestly earned, but this was his way of offering bakshish. And the muter had due anger and said, No better are ye than a frank to have hidden the truth so long and waxed fat as the Nile rises and falls. The two fedans, as thou sayest, are mine. Abu Sedi bowed low and rejoined, Now shall I sleep in peace by the grace of heaven, and all my people under my date trees, and all my people, he added, with an upward look at the muter. But the rentals of the two fedans of land these ten years, thou hast eased thy soul by bringing the rentals thereof? Abu Sedi's glance fell and his hands twitched. His fingers fumbled with his robe of striped silk. He cursed the muter in his heart for his bitter humor, but was not his son in prison, and did it not lie with the muter whether he lived or died? So he answered, All-seeing and all-knowing art thou, O Effendi, and I have reckoned the rentals even to this hour for the ten years, fifty piastres for each fedan. A hundred for the five years of high Nile, interposed the muter. Fifty for the five lean years, and a hundred for the five fat years, said Abu Sedi and wished that his words were poison arrows, that they might give the muter many deaths at once. And may Allah give thee greatness upon thy greatness. God prosper thee also, Abu Sedi, and see that thou keep only what is thine own henceforth. Get thee gone in peace. At what hour shall I see the face of my son alive? asked Abu Sedi in a low voice, placing his hand upon his turban in humility. Tomorrow at even, when the muezzin calls from the mosque of El-Hassan, be thou at the west wall of the prison by the gate of the prophet's sorrow, with thy fastest camel. Your son shall ride for me through the desert even to Farifra, and bear a letter to the Bimbashi there. If he bear it safely, his life is his own. If he fail, look to thy fedans of land. God is merciful, and Sedi is bone of my bone, said Abu Sedi, and laid his hand again upon his turban. That was how Muhammad Sedi did not at once pay the price of the grindstone but rode into the desert bearing the message of the muter and returned safely with the answer, and was again seen in the cafes of Manfalut. And none of Ibn Haran's friends did aught, for the world knew through whom it was that Seti lived, and land was hard to keep in Manfalut, and the prison near. But one day a kavas of the Khedive swooped down on Manfalut, and twenty young men were carried off in conscription. Among them was Seti, now married to Ahasa, the fella made for whom the grindstone had fallen on Ibn Haran's head. When the fatal number fell to him, and it was ordained that he must go to Dongola to serve in the Khedive's legions, he went to his father, with the Hassa wailing behind him. Save thyself, said the old man with a frown. I have done what I could, I have sold my wife's jewels, answered Sedi. Ten piastres, said old Abu Sedi grimly. Twelve, said Sedi, grinning from ear to ear. Thou wilt add four fedans of land to that I will answer for the muter. Thy life only cost me two fedans. Shall I pay four to free thee of serving thy master the Khedive? Get thee gone into the Sudan. I do not fear for thee, thou wilt live on. Allah is thy friend. Peace be with thee. 2. So it was that the broad-shouldered Seti went to be a soldier, with all the women of the village wailing behind him, 
and Ahasa his wife covering her head with dust and weeping by his side as he stepped out towards Dangola. For himself, Seti was a philosopher, that is to say, he was a true Egyptian. Whatever was, was to be, and Seti had a good digestion, which is a great thing in the desert. Moreover, he had a capacity for foraging, or foray. The calmness with which he risked his life for an onion, or a water bag would have done credit to a prince of buccaneers. He was never flustered. He had dropped a grindstone on the head of his rival, but the smile that he smiled then was the same smile with which he suffered and forayed and fought and filched in the desert. With a back like a door, and arms as long and strong as a gorilla's, with no moral character to speak of, and an imperturbable selfishness, even an ignorant Arab like Seti may go far. More than once his bimbashi drew a sword to cut him down for the peaceful insolent grin with which he heard himself suddenly charged with very original crimes. But even the officer put his sword up again, because he remembered that though Seti was the curse of the regiment on the march, there was no man like him in the day of battle. Covered with desert sand and blood, and fighting and raging after the manner of a Sikh, he could hold ten companies together like a wall against the charge of dervishes. The bimbashi rejoiced at this, for he was a coward. Likewise his captain was a coward, and so was his lieutenant, for they were half Turks, half Gippies, who had seen Paris and had not the decency to die there. Also it had been discovered that no man made so good a spy or envoy as Seti. His gift for lying was inexpressible, confusion never touched him, for the flattest contradictions in the matter of levying bakshish he always found an excuse. Where the bimbashi and his officers were afraid to go lest the bald-headed eagle and the vulture should carry away their heads as titbits to the Libyan hills, said he was sent. In more than one way he always kept his head. He was at once the curse and the pride of the regiment. For his sins he could not be punished, and his virtues were of value only to save his life. In this fashion, while his regiment thinned out by disease, famine, fighting, and the midnight knife, Seti came on to Dangola, to Berber, to Khartoum, and he grinned with satisfaction when he heard that they would make even for Cordofan. He had outlived all the officers who left Manfalip with the regiment save the Bimbashi, and the Bimbashi was superstitious and believed that while Seti lived he would live. Therefore, no clansman ever watched his standard flying in the van as the Bimbashi, from behind, watched the long arm of Seti slaying, and heard his voice like a brass horn above all others shouting his war cry. But at Khartoum came Seti's fall. Many sorts of original sin had been his, with profit and prodigious pleasure. But when, by the supposed orders of the Bimbashi, he went through Khartoum levying attacks upon every dancing girl in the place and making her pay upon the spot at the point of a merciless tongue, he went one step too far. For his genius had preceded that of Salamlik Pasha, the friend of the Mephetish at Cairo, by one day only. Salamlik himself had collected taxes on dancing girls all the way from Cairo to Khartoum, and to be hoist by an Arab in a foot regiment having no authority, and only a limitless insolence, was more than the excellency could bear. To Salamlik Pasha the Bimbashi hastily disowned all knowledge of Seti's perfidy, but both were brought out to have their hands and feet and heads cut off in the Baidalmal, in the presence of the dancing girls and the populace. In the appointed place, when Seti saw how the Bimbashi wept, for he had been to Paris and had no Arab blood in him, how he wrung his hands, for had not absinthe weakened his nerves in the cafes of St. Michel, 
When Seti saw that he was no Arab and was afraid to die, then he told the truth to Salamlik Pasha. He even boldly offered to tell the Pasha where half his own ill-gotten gains were hid, if he would let the Bimbashi go. Now, Salamlik Pasha was an Egyptian, and is it not written in the book of Egypt that no man without the most dangerous reason may refuse Bakshish? So it was that Salamlik talked to the ulama, the holy men, who were there, and they urged him to clemency, as holy men will, even in Egypt, at a price. So it was also that the Bimbashi went back to his regiment with all his limbs intact. Seti and the other half of his ill-gotten gains were left. His hands were about to be struck off, when he realized of how little account his gold would be without them, so he offered it to Salamlik Pasha for their sake. The Pasha promised, and then, having found the money, serenely prepared the execution. For his anger was great. Was not the idea of taxing the dancing girls his very own, the most original tax ever levied in Egypt, and to have the honor of it filched from him by a soldier of Manfalut, no, Mahan Seti should be crucified, and Seti, the pride and the curse of his regiment, would have been crucified between two palms on the banks of the river had it not been for Fielding Bay, the Englishman, Fielding of St. Bartholomew's, who had burned gloriously to reform Egypt root and branch, and had seen the fire of his desires die down. Fielding Bay saved Seti, but not with Bakshish. Fielding intervened. He knew Salamlik Pasha well, and the secret of his influence over him is for telling elsewhere. But whatever its source, it gave Muhammad Seti his life. It gave him much more, for it expelled him from the Khedive's army. Now soldiers without number, gladly risking death, had deserted from the army of the Khedive. They had bought themselves out with enormous bakshish, they had been thieves, murderers, panderers, that they might be freed from service by some corrupt pasha or bimbashi, but no one in the knowledge of the world had ever been expelled from the army of the Khedive. There was a satanic humor in the situation pleasant to the soul of Mahan Seti, if soul his subconsciousness might be called. In the presence of his regiment, drawn up in the Baidelmal, before his trembling Bimbashi, whose lips were now pale with terror at the loss of his mascot, Mahan Seti was drummed out of line, out of his regiment, out of the Baidelmal. It was opera buff, and though Seti could not know what opera buff was, he did know that it was a ridiculous fantasia and he grinned his insolent grin all the way, even to the corner of the camel market, where the drummer and the sergeant and his squad turned back from ministering a disgrace they would gladly have shared. Left at the corner of the camel market, Maham said he planned his future. At first it was to steal a camel and take the desert for Berber. Then he thought of the English Hakim, Fielding Bay, who had saved his life. Now, a man who has saved your life once may do it again. One favor is always the promise of another. So Seti, with a sudden inspiration, went straight to the house of Fielding Bay and sat down before it on his mat. With the setting of the sun came a clatter of tins and a savory odor throughout Khartoum to its farthest precincts, for it was Ramadan, and no man ate till sunset. Seti smiled an avid smile, and waited. At last he got up, turned his face towards Mecca, and said his prayers. Then he lifted the latch of Fielding's hut, entered, eyed the medicine bottles and the surgical case with childish apprehension, and made his way to the kitchen. There he foraged. He built a fire. His courage grew. He ran to the bazaar, and came back with an armful of meats and vegetables. So it was that when Fielding returned he found Maham Seti and a savory mess awaiting him.
Also there was coffee and a bottle of brandy which Seti had looted in the bazaar. In one doorway stood Fielding, in another stood Maham Seti, with the same grin which had served his purpose all the way from Cairo, his ugly face behind it, and his prodigious shoulders below it, and the huge chest from which came forth, like the voice of a dove. God give thee long life, Sadat el Bey. Now an MD degree and a course in St. Bartholomew's Hospital do not necessarily give a knowledge of the human soul, though the outlying lands of the earth have been fattened by those who thought there was knowledge and salvation in a conquered curriculum. Fielding Bay, however, had never made pretense of understanding the Oriental mind, so he discreetly took his seat and made no remarks. From sheer instinct, however, when he came to the coffee he threw a boot which caught Maham Seti in the middle of the chest and said roughly, French, not Turkish, idiot. Then Maham Seti grinned, and he knew that he was happy, for it was deep in his mind that that was the Inglesize way of offering a long engagement. In any case Seti had come to stay. Three times he made French coffee that night before it suited, and the language of fielding was appropriate in each case. At last a boot, a native drum, and a wood sculpture of Pabst the lion-headed goddess established perfect relations between them. They fell into their places of master and man as accurately as though the one had smitten and the other served for twenty years. The only acute differences they had were upon two points, the cleaning of the medicine bottles and surgical instruments, and the looting. But it was wonderful to see how Maham Seti took the kurbash at the hands of Fielding when he shied from the medicine bottles. He could have broken, or bent double with one twist, the weedy, thin-chested fielding. But though he saw a deadly magic and the evil eye in every stopper, and though to him the surgical instruments were torturing steels which the devil had forged for his purposes, he conquered his own prejudices so far as to assist in certain bad cases which came in fielding's way on the journey down the Nile. The looting was a different matter. Had not Mohammed said he looted all his life, looted from his native village to the borders of Cordofan? Did he not take to foray as a wild ass to Burson? Moreover, as little Dicky Donovan said humorously yet shamelessly when he joined them at Carrasco, What should a native do but loot who came from Manfalut? Dicky had a prejudice against the murderer, because he was a murderer, and Maham said he viewed with scorn any white man who was not fielding, much more so one who was only five feet and a trifle over. So for a time there was no sympathy between the two but each conquered the other in the end. Seti was conquered first. One day Dicky, with a sudden burst of generosity, for he had a button to his pocket, gave Maham Seti a handful of cigarettes. The next day Seti said to Fielding, Behold, God has given thee strong men for friends. Thou hast Maham Seti. His chest blew out like a bellows. And thou hast Donovan Pasha. Fielding grunted. He was not a fluent man save in forbidden language, and said he added, Behold thou, Sadat el Bey, who opens a man's body and turns over his heart with a sword point, and sewing him up with silken cords bids him live again, greatness is in thy house. Last night thy friend, Donovan Pasha, gave into my hands a score of those cigarettes which are like the smell of a camel yard. In the evening, having broken bread and prayed, I sat down at the door of the barber in peace to smoke as becomes a man who loves God and his benefits. Five times I puffed, and then I stayed my lips, for why should a man die of smoke when he can die by the sword? But there are many men in Carrasco whose lives are not as clean linen, 
These I did not love. I placed in their hands one by one the cigarettes, and with their blessings following me I lost myself in the dusk and waited. Muhammad said he paused. On his face was a smile of sardonic retrospection. Go on, you fool, grunted Fielding. Nineteen sick men, unworthy followers of the Prophet, thanked Allah in the mosque today that their lives were spared. Donovan Pasha is a great man and a strong, effendi. We'd be three strong men together. Dickie Donovan's conversion to a lasting belief in Muhammad Seti came a year later. The thing happened at a little sortie from the Nile. Fielding was chief medical officer, and Dickie, for the moment, was unattached. When the time came for starting, Muhammad Seti brought round Fielding's horse and also Dickie Donovan's. Now, Muhammad Seti loved a horse as well as a Bagara Arab, and he had come to love Fielding's whaler Bashi Bazook as a far-shoot dog loves his master. And Bashi Bazook was worthy of Seti's love. The sand of the desert, Seti's breath and the tail of his yelek made the coat of Bashi Bazook like silk. It was the joy of the regiment, and the regiment knew that Seti had added a new chapter to the Quran concerning horses, in keeping with Muhammad's own famous passage. By the chargers that pant, and the hoofs that strike fire, and the scourers at dawn, who stir up the dust with it, and cleave through a host with it. But Muhammad's phrases were recited in the mosque, and Seti's, as he rubbed Bashi Bazook with the tail of his yelek. There was one thing, however, that Seti loved more than horses, or at least as much. Life to him was one long possible Donnerbrook fair. That was why, although he was no longer in the army, when Fielding and Dickey mounted for the sortie he said to Fielding, O oh, brother of Joshua and all the fighters of Israel, I have a bobtailed Arab. Permit me to ride with thee. And Fielding replied, You will fight the barnyard fowl for dinner. Get back to your stew pots. But Seti was not to be fobbed off. It is written that the Lord, the Great One, is compassionate and merciful. Wilt thou then no sod it? Fielding interrupted. Go, harry the onion field for dinner. You're a dog of a slave, and a murderer too. You must pay the price of that grindstone. But Seti hung by the skin of his teeth to the fringe of Fielding's good nature. Fielding's words only were sour and wrathful. So Seti grinned and said, For the grindstone, behold it sent ye bien around to the mercy of God. Let him rest, praise be to God. You were drummed out of the army. You can't fight said Fielding again, but he was smiling under his long mustache. Is not a bobtailed nag sufficient shame? Let thy friend ride the bobtailed nag and pay the price of the grindstone and the drum, said Seti. Fall in, rang the colonel's command, and Fielding, giving Seti a friendly kick in the ribs, galloped away to the troop. Seti turned to the little onion garden. His eye harried it for a moment, and he grinned. He turned to the doorway where a stewpot rested, and his mind dwelt cheerfully on the lamb he had looted for Fielding's dinner. But last of all his eye rested upon his bobtailed Arab, the shameless thing in an Arab country, where every horse rears his tail as a peacock spreads his feathers, as a marching Albanian lifts his foot. The bobtailed Arab's nose was up, his stump was high. A hundred times he had been in battle. He was welted and scarred like a shoemaker's apron. He snorted his cry towards the dust rising like a surf behind the heels of the colonel's troop. Suddenly Seti answered the cry. He answered the cry and sprang forward. 
That was how in the midst of a desperate melee twenty miles away on the road to Dungola little Dickie Donovan saw Seti riding into the thick of the fight armed only with a neighborhood of Downwood. His call. Allah Akbar! Rising like a horse-throated bugle, as it had risen many a time in the old days on the road from Manfalut. Seti and his bobtailed Arab, two shameless ones, worked their way to the front. Not Seti's strong right arm alone and his neighbor were at work, but the bobtailed Arab, like an iron-handed razor-toothed shrew, struck and bit his way, his eyes blood-red like Seti's. The superstitious dervishes fell back before this pair of demons, for their madness was like the madness of those who at the dosa throw themselves beneath the feet of the sheik's horse by the mosque of El Hassan in Cairo. The bobtailed Arab's lips were drawn back over his assaulting teeth in a horrible grin. Seti grinned too, the grin of fury and of death. Fielding did not know how it was that, falling wounded from his horse, he was caught by strong arms, as Bashibazuk cleared him at a bound and broke into the desert. But Dickie Donovan, with his own horse lanced under him, knew that Seti made him mount the bobtailed Arab with Fielding in front of him and that a moment later they had joined the little band retreating to Carrasco, having left sixty of their own dead on the field, and six times that number of dervishes. It was Dickie Donovan who cooked Fielding's supper that night, having harried the onion field and fought the barnyard fowl, as Fielding had commanded Seti. But next evening at sunset Mahan Seti came into the fort, slashed and bleeding, with Bashibazuk limping heavily after him. Fielding said that Seti's was the good old game for which VCs were the reward, to run terrible risks to save a life in the face of the enemy. But heretofore, it had always been the life of a man, not of a horse. To this day the gippies of that regiment still alive do not understand why Seti should have stayed behind and risked his life to save a horse and bring him wounded back to his master. But little Dickie Donovan understood, and Fielding understood, and Fielding never afterwards mounted Bashibazuk but he remembered. It was Mahan Seti who taught him the cry of Muhammad. By the chargers that pant, and the hoofs that strike fire, and the scourers at dawn, who stir up the dust with it, and cleave through a host with it. And in the course of time Mahan Seti managed to pay the price of the grindstone, and also of the drum. The desertion of Mahan Salim. The business began during Ramadan. How it ended, and where was in the mouth of every soldier between Beni Suf and Dangola and there was not a mud hut or a mosque within thirty miles of Maham Salim's home, not a kiasa or falaka dropping anchor for gossip and garlic below the mutary, but knew the story of Soda, the daughter of Wasif the camel driver. Soda was pretty and upright, with a full round breast and a slim figure. She carried a ballass of water on her head as gracefully as a princess at tiara. This was remarked by occasional inspectors making their official rounds, and by more than one kawaga putting in with his dahabia where the village maidens came to fill their water jars. Soda's trinkets and bracelets were perhaps no better than those of her companions, but her one garment was of the linen of Beni Mazar, as good as that worn by the sheik elbowed himself. Wasif the camel driver, being proud of Soda, gave her the advantage of his frequent good fortune in desert loot and now bakshish. But Wasif was a hard man for all that, and he grew bitter and morose at last because he saw that camel driving must suffer by the coming of the railway. Besides, as a man gets older he likes the season of Ramadan less, for he must fast from sunrise to sunset though his work goes on, and with broken sleep, having his meals at night, it is ten to one but he gets irritable. So it happened that one evening just at sunset, 
Wasif came to his hut, with the sun like the red rim of a huge thumbnail in the sky behind him, ready beyond telling for his breakfast, and found nothing. On his way home he had seen before the houses and cafes silent musclemans with cigarettes and matches in their fingers, cooks with their hands on the lids of the cooking pots, where the dura and onions boiled. But here outside his own doorway there was no odor, and there was silence within. Now, by the beard of the prophet, he muttered, Is it for this I have fed the girl and clothed her with linen from Benny Mazar all these years? And he turned upon his heel, and kicked a yellow cur in the ribs. Then he went to the nearest cafe, and making huge rolls of forcemeat with his fingers crammed them into his mouth, grunting like a Berkshire boar. Nor did his anger cease thereafter, for this meal of meat had cost him five piastres, the second meal of meat in a week. As Wasif sat on the mastaba of the café sullen and angry, the village barber whispered in his ear that Maham Salim and Soda had been hunting jackals in the desert all afternoon. Hardly had the barber fled from the anger of Wasif, when a glittering kvass of the Mufetish at Cairo passed by on a black errand of conscription. With a curse Wasif felt in his vest for his purse, and called to the kvass, the being more dreaded in Egypt than the plague. That very night the conscription descended upon Maham Salim, and by sunrise he was standing in front of the house of the Mamur with twelve others, to begin the march to Dongola. Though the young man's father went secretly to the Mamur, and offered him bakshish, even to the tune of a fed end of land, the Mamur refused to accept it. That was a very peculiar thing, because every Egyptian official, from the Khedive down to the gaffer of the cane fields, took bakshish in the name of Allah. Wasif the camel driver was the cause. He was a deep man and a strong, and it was through him the conscription descended upon Maham Salim. Son of a burnt father, as he called him, who had gone shooting jackals in the desert with his daughter, and had lost him his breakfast. Wasif's rage was quiet but effective, for he had whispered to some purpose in the ear of the Mamor as well as in that of the dreaded kavas of conscription. Afterwards he had gone home and smiled at Soda his daughter when she lied to him about the sunset breakfast. With a placid smile and lips that murmured, Praise be to God! The malignant camel driver watched the shrieking women of the village throwing dust on their heads and lamenting loudly for the thirteen young men of Beni Suf who were going forth never to return, or so it seemed to them. For of all the herd of humankind driven into the desert before whips and swords, but a moiety ever returned and that moiety so battered that their mothers did not know them. Therefore, at Beni Suf that morning women wept, and men looked sullenly upon the ground, all but Wasif the camel driver. It troubled the mind of Wasif that Maham Salim made no outcry at his fate. He was still more puzzled when the Mamur whispered to him that Maham Salim had told the Kavas and his own father that since it was the will of God, then the will of God was his will, and he would go. Wasif replied that the Mamur did well not to accept the bakshish of Maham Salim's father, for the Mafetish at the palace of Ismail would have heard of it, and there would have been an end to the Mamur. It was quite a different matter when it was bakshish for sending Maham Salim to the Sudan. With a shameless delight Wasif went to the door of his own home, and calling to Soda, told her that Maham Salim was among the conscripts. He also told her that the young man was willing to go and that the Mamur would take no bakshish from his father. He looked to see her burst into tears and wailing, but she only stood and looked at him like one stricken blind. Wasif laughed, and turned on his heel, and went out, 
for what should he know of the look in a woman's face? He to whom most women were alike, he who had taken dancing girls with his camels into the desert many a time? What should he know of that love which springs once in every woman's heart, be she Fela or Pharaoh's daughter? When he had gone, Soda groped her way blindly to the door and out into the roadway. Her lips moved, but she only said, Mahamd, Mahamd Salim! Her father's words knelled in her ear that her lover was willing to go, and she kept saying brokenly, Mahamd, Mahamd Salim! As the mist left her eyes she saw the conscripts go by, and Mahamd Salim was in the rear rank. He saw her also, but he kept his head turned away, taking a cigarette from young Yusef, the drunken gaffer, as they passed on. Unlike the manner of her people, Soda turned and went back into her house, and threw herself upon the mud floor, and put the folds of her garment in her mouth lest she should cry out in her agony. A whole day she lay there and did not stir, save to drink from the water bottle which old Fatima, the maker of mats, had placed by her side. For Fatima thought of the far-off time when she loved Hassan the potter, who had been dragged from his wheel by a kavas of conscription and lost among the sands of the Libyan desert, and she read the girl's story. That evening, as Wasif the camel driver went to the mosque to pray, Fatima cursed him, because now all the village laughed secretly at the revenge that Wasif had taken upon the lover of his daughter. A few laughed the harder because they knew Wasif would come to feel it had been better to have chained Maham Selim to a barren fig tree and kept him there until he married Soda, than to let him go. He had mischievously sent him into that furnace which eats the fellaheen to the bones, and these bones thereafter mark white the road of the Red Sea caravans and the track of the Khedive's soldiers in the yellow sands. When Fatima cursed Wasif he turned and spat at her, and she went back and sat on the ground beside Soda, and mumbled tags from the Quran above her for comfort. Then she ate greedily the food which Soda should have eaten, snatching scraps of consolation in return for the sympathy she gave. The long night went, the next day came, and Soda got up and began to work again. And the months went by. 2. One evening, on a day which had been almost too hot for even the seller of licorice water to go by calling and clanging, Wasif the camel driver sat at the door of a malodorous cafe and listened to a wandering wheelie chanting the Quran. Wasif was in an ill humor, first, because the day had been so hot, secondly, because he had sold his ten months' camel at a price almost within the bounds of honesty, and thirdly, because a score of railway contractors and subs were camped outside the town. Also, Soda had scarcely spoken to him for three days past. In spite of all, Soda had been the apple of his eye, although he had sworn again and again that next to a firman of the sultan, a ten-months camel was the most beautiful thing on earth. He was in a bitter humor. This had been an intermittent disease with him almost since the day Maham Salim had been swallowed up by the Sudan, for, like her mother before her, Soda had no mind to be a mat for his feet. Was it not even said that Soda's mother was descended from an English slave with red hair, who in the terrible disaster at Damietta in 1805 had been carried away into captivity on the Nile, where he married a fellow woman and died a good Mussulman? Soda's mother had had red-brown hair, and not black as becomes a fellow woman, but Wasaf was proud of this ancient heritage of red hair, which belonged to a field marshal of Great Britain, so he swore by the beard of the prophet. That is why he had not beaten Soda these months past when she refused to answer him, when with cold stubbornness she gave him his meals or withheld them at her will. 
He was even a little awed by her silent force of will, and at last he had to ask her humbly for a savory dish which her mother had taught her to make, a dish he always ate upon the birthday of Muhammad Ali, who had done him the honor to flog him with his own kurbash for filching the rations of his Arab charger. But this particular night Wasif was bitter, and watched with stolid indifference the going down of the sun, the time when he usually said his prayers. He was in so ill a humor that he would willingly have met his old enemy, Yusef, the drunken gaffer, and settled their long-standing dispute forever. But Yusef came not that way. He was lying drunk with hashish outside the mosque El Hassan, with a letter from Muhammad Salim in his green turban, for Yusef had been a pilgrimage to Mecca and might wear the green turban. But if Yusef came not by the cafe where Wasif sat glooming, someone else came who quickly roused Wasif from his phlegm. It was Donovan Pasha, the young English official, who had sat with him many a time at the door of his but and asked him questions about Dongola and Berber and the Sudanese. And because Dickie spoke Arabic, and was never known to have aught to do with the women of Beni Suf, he had been welcome, and none the less because he never frowned when an Arab told a lie. Niharikakum said, Muhammad Wasif, said Dickie, and sat upon a bench and drew a nargalet to him, wiping the ivory mouthpiece with his handkerchief. Niharike said, Sadat el Pasha, answered Wasif, and touched lips, breast, and forehead with his hand. Then they shook hands, thumbs up, after the ancient custom. And once more, Wasif touched his breast, his lips, and his forehead. They sat silent too long for Wasif's pleasure, for he took pride in what he was pleased to call his friendship with Donovan Pasha, and he could see his watchful neighbors gathering at a little distance. It did not suit his book that they two should not talk together. May Allah take them to his mercy. A regiment was cut to pieces by the dervishes at Dongola last quarter of the moon, he said. It was not the regiment of Muhammad Salim, Dicky answered slowly, with a curious hard note in his voice. All blessings do not come at once, such is the will of God, answered Wasif with a sneer. You brother of asses said Dicky, showing his teeth a little. You brother of asses of Baghdad! Sadat el-Basha! exclaimed Wasif, angry and dumbfounded. You had better have gone yourself, and left Maham Salim your camels and your daughter, continued Dicky, his eyes straight upon Wasif's. God knows your meaning, said Wasif in a sudden fright, for the Englishman's tongue was straight, as he well knew. They sneer at you behind your back, Maham Wasif. No man in the village dare tell you, for you have no friends, but I tell you, that you may save soda before it is too late. Maham Salim lives, or lived last quarter of the moon, so says Yusuf the gaffer. Sell your ten months camel, buy the lad out, and bring him back to soda. Sadat, said Wasif, in a quick fear, and dropped the stem of the nagala, and got to his feet. Sadat el-Basha. Before the Nile falls and you may plant yonder field with onions, answered Dicky, jerking his head towards the flooded valley. Her time will be come. Wasif's lips were drawn, like shriveled parchment over his red gums. The fingers of his right hand fumbled in his robe. There's no one to kill, keep quiet, said Dicky. But Wasif saw near by the faces of the villagers, and on every face he thought he read a smile, a sneer, though in truth none sneered for they were afraid of his terrible anger. Mad with fury he snatched the turban from his head and threw it on the ground. Then suddenly he gave one cry. 
Allah! A vibrant clack like a pistol shot, for he saw Yusef, the drunken gaffer, coming down the road. Yusef heard that cry of, Allah! And he knew that the hour had come for settling old scores. The hashish clouds lifted from his brain, and he gripped his neighborhood of the hard wood of the dampam, and, with a cry like a wolf, came on. It would have been well for Wasif the camel driver if he had not taken the turban from his head, for before he could reach Yusef with his dagger, he went down, his skull cracking like the top of an egg under a spoon. 3. Thus it was that Soda was left to fight her battle alone. She did not weep or wail when Wasif's body was brought home and the Magasil and Hanudi came to do their offices. She did not smear her hair with mud, nor was she moved by the wailing of the mourning women nor the chanters of the Quran. She only said to Fatima when all was over, It is well, he is gone from my woe to the mercy of God. Praise be to God. And she held her head high in the village still, though her heart was in the dust. She would have borne her trouble alone to the end, but that she was bitten on the arm by one of her father's camels the day they were sold in the marketplace. Then, helpless and suffering and fevered, she yielded to the thrice-repeated request of Dickie Donovan and was taken to the hospital at Assiout, which Fielding Bay, Dickie's friend, had helped to found. But Soda, as her time drew near and the terror of it stirred her heart, cast restless eyes upon the whitewashed walls and rough floors of the hospital. She longed for the mud hut at Benisuf, and the smell of the river and the little field of onions she planted every year. Day by day she grew harder of heart against those who held her in the hospital, for to her it was but a prison. She would not look when the doctor came, and she would not answer, but kept her eyes closed, and she did not shrink when they dressed the arm so cruelly wounded by the camel's teeth, but lay still and dumb. Now, a strange thing happened, for her hair which had been so black turned brown, and grew browner and browner till it was like the hair of her mother, who, so the Nyline folk said, was descended from the English soldier slave with red hair. Fielding Bay and Dickie came to see her in hospital once before they returned to Cairo, but Soda would not even speak to them, though she smiled when they spoke to her, and no one else ever saw her smile during the days she spent in that hospital with the red floor and white walls and the lazy watchman walking up and down before the door. She kept her eyes closed in the daytime, but at night they were always open, always. Pictures of all she had lived and seen came back to her then. Pictures of days long before Maham Salim came into her life. Maham Salim! She never spoke the words now, but whenever she thought them her heart shrank in pain. Maham Salim had gone like a coward into the desert, leaving her alone. Her mind dwelt on the little mud hut and the onion field, and she saw down by the foreshore of the river the great kiasas from Asuan and Luxor laden with cotton or dura or sugar cane, their bent prows hooked in the Nile mud. She saw again the little fires built along the shore and atop of the piles of grain, round which sat the white, the black, and the yellow-robed riverine folk in the crimson glare, while from the banks came the cry, Al-Hali, am Al-Hali, as stalwart young Arabs drew in from the current to the bank some stubborn, overloaded kiasa. She heard the snarl of the camels as they knelt down before her father's but to rest before the journey into the yellow plains of sand beyond. She saw the seller of sweetmeats go by calling, calling. She heard the droning of the children in the village school behind the hut, the dull clatter of Arabic consonants galloping through the Quran. She saw the moon, the full moon upon the Nile, 
the wide acreage of silver water before the golden yellow and yellow purple of the Libyan hills behind. She saw through her tears the sweet mirage of home, and her heart rebelled against the prison where she lay. What should she know of hospitals, she whose medicaments had been herbs got from the Nile Valley and the cool Nile mud? Was it not the will of God if we lived or the will of God if we died? Did we not all lie in the great mantle of the mercy of God, ready to be lifted up or to be set down as he willed? They had prisoned her here. There were bars upon the windows. There were watchmen at the door. At last she could bear it no longer. The end of it all came. She stole out over the bodies of the sleeping watchmen, out into the dusty road under the palms, down to the waterside, to the Nile, the path leading homewards. She must go down the Nile, hiding by day traveling by night, the homing bird with a broken wing back to the but where she had lived so long with Wasif the camel driver, back where she could lie in the dusk of her windowless home, shutting out the world from her solitude. There she could bear the agony of her hour. Drinking the water of the Nile, eating the crumbs of dura bread she had brought from the hospital, getting an onion from a field, chewing shreds of sugarcane, hiding by day and trudging on by night, hourly growing weaker, she struggled towards Beni Suf. Fifty, forty, thirty, ten, five miles. Oh, the last two days, her head so hot and her brain bursting, and a thousand fancies swimming before her eyes, her heart fluttering, fluttering, stopping, going on, stopping, going on. It was only the sound of the river, the Nile, mother of Egypt, crooning to her disordered spirit, which kept her on her feet. Five miles, four miles, three miles, two, and then... She never quite remembered how she came to the hut where she was born. Two miles, two hours of incredible agony, now running, now leaning against a palm tree, now dropping to her knees, now fighting on and on, she came at last to the one spot in the world where she could die in peace. As she staggered, stumbled, through the village, Yusef, the drunken gaffer, saw her. He did not dare speak to her, for had he not killed her father— and had he not bought himself free of punishment from the muter? So he ran to old Fatima and knocked upon her door with his neighbor, crying, In the name of Allah get thee to the hut of Wasif the camel driver. Thus it was that Soda, in her agony, heard a voice say out of the infinite distance, All praise to Allah, he hath even now the strength of a year-old child. 4. That night at sunset, as Soda lay upon the sheepskin spread for her, with the child nestled between her arm and her breast, a figure darkened the doorway, and old Fatima cried out, Maham Salim! With a gasping sound Soda gathered the child quickly to her breast, and shrank back to the wall. This surely was the ghost of Maham Salim, this gaunt, stooping figure covered with dust. Soda, in the name of Allah the Compassionate, the Merciful, Soda, Beautiful One! Maham Salim, once the lithe, the straight, the graceful, now bent, awkward, fevered, all the old daring gone from him, stood still in the middle of the room, humbled before the motherhood in his sight. Brother of jackals, cried old Fatima, what dost thou hear? What dost thou hear, dog of dogs? She spat at him. He took no notice. Soda, he said eagerly, prayerfully, and his voice, though hoarse, was softer than she had ever heard it. Soda, I have come through death to thee. Listen, Soda. At night, when sleep was upon the barrack house, I stole out to come to thee. My heart had been hard. I had not known how much I loved thee. 
Soda interrupted him. What dost thou know of love, Maham Salim? The blood of the dead cries from the ground. He came a step nearer. The blood of Wasif the camel driver is upon my head, he said. In the desert there came news of it. In the desert, even while we fought the wild tribes, one to ten, a voice kept crying in my ear, even as thou hast cried, What didst thou know of love, Mahan Salim? One by one the men of Beni Suf fell round me. One by one they spoke of their village and of their women, and begged for a drop of water, and died. And my heart grew hot within me, and a spirit kept whispering in my ear, Maham Salim, think of the village thou hast shamed, of soda thou hast wronged. No drop of water shall cheer thy soul in dying. Fatima and Soda listened now with bated breath, for this was the voice of one who had drunk the vinegar and gall of life. When the day was done, and sleep was upon the barrack house, my heart waked up and I knew that I loved Soda as I had never loved her. I ran into the desert, and the jackals flew before me, outcasts of the desert, they and I, coming to the tomb of Anshar the Sheik, by which was a well, there I found a train of camels. One of these I stole, and again I ran into the desert, and left the jackals behind. Hour after hour, day and night, I rode on. But faintness was upon me, and dreams came. For though only the sands were before me, I seemed to watch the Nile running running, and now beside it, hastening with it, hastening, hastening towards thy home. And Allah put a thorn into my heart, that a sharp pain went through my body, and at last I fell. Soda's eyes were on him now with a strange, swimming brilliancy. Mahamd, Maham Salim, Allah touched thine eyes that thou didst see truly, she said eagerly. Speak not till I have done, he answered. When I waked again I was alone in the desert, no food, no water, and the dead camel beside me. But I had no fear. If it be God's will, said I, then I shall come unto Soda. If it be not God's will, so be it, for are we not on the cushion of his mercy, to sleep or to wake, to live or to die? He paused, tottering, and presently sank upon the ground, his hands drooped before him, his head bent down. Old Fatima touched him on the shoulder. Brother of vultures didst thou go forth, brother of eagles dost thou return, she said. Eat, drink, in the house of thy child and its mother. Shall the unforgiven eat or drink? he asked, and he rocked his body to and fro, like one who chants the Quran in a corner of El-Azza, forgetting and forgotten. Soda's eyes were on him now as though they might never leave him again, and she dragged herself little by little towards him, herself and the child, little by little, until at last she touched his feet, and the child's face was turned towards him from its mother's breast. Thou art my love, Maham Salim, she said. He raised his head from his hands, a hunger of desire in his face. Thou art my lord, she added. Art thou not forgiven? The little one is thine and mine, she whispered. Wilt thou not speak to him? Lest Allah should strike me with blindness and dry up the juice of my veins, I will not touch thee or the child until all be righted. Food will I not eat, nor water drink until thou art mine, by the law of the prophet mine. Laying down the water jar and the plate of dura bread, old Fatima gathered her robe about her and cried as she ran from the house. Marriage and Fantasia thou shalt have this hour. The stiffness seemed to pass from her bones as she ran through the village to the house of the Amda. Her voice, lifting shrilly, sang the song of Halil, the song of the newly married, 
till it met the chant of the muezzin on the tower of the mosque el hassan and mingled with it dying away over the fields of bursam and the swift flowing nile that night Muhammad Salim and Soto the daughter of Wasif the camel driver were married, but the only fantasia they held was their own low laughter over the child. In the village, however, people were little moved to smile, for they knew that Muhammad Salim was a deserter from the army of the Khedive at Dongola, and that meant death. But no one told Soda this, and she did not think, she was content to rest in the fleeting dream. Give them twenty-four hours! said the black-visaged fat sergeant of cavalry come to arrest Maham Salim for desertion. The father of Maham Salim again offered the Mamur a fed-in of land if the young man might go free, and to the sergeant he offered a she-camel and a buffalo. To no purpose. It was Maham Salim himself who saved his father's goods to him. He sent this word to the sergeant by Yusuf the drunken gaffer. Give me to another sunset and sunrise, and what I have is thine three black donkeys of Asiat rented to old Abdullah the Seraph. Because with this offer he should not only have Bakshish but the man also, the fat sergeant gave him leave. When the time was up, and Maham Salim drew Soda's face to his breast, he knew that it was the last look and last embrace. I am going back, he said. My place is empty at Dongola. No, no, thou shalt not go, she cried. See how the little one loves thee. She urged, and sobbing, she held the child up to him. But he spoke softly to her, and at last she said, Kiss me, Maham Salim. Behold now thy discharge shall be bought from the palace of the Khedive, and soon thou wilt return. She cried. If it be the will of God, he answered. But the look of thine eyes I will take with me, and the face of the child here. He thrust a finger into the palm of the child, and the little dark hand closed round it but when he would have taken it away, the little hand still clung, though the eyes were scarce opened upon life. See, Maham Salim, Soda cried. He would go with thee. He shall come to me one day, by the mercy of God, answered Maham Salim. Then he went out into the marketplace and gave himself up to the fat sergeant. As they reached the outskirts of the village, a sorry camel came with a sprawling gallop after them, and swaying and rolling above it was Yusef, the drunken gaffer, his neighbor of Domwood across his knees. What dost thou come for, friend of the mercy of God? asked Maham Salim. To be thy messenger, praise be to God, answered Yusuf, swinging his water bottle clear for a drink. Thee. In Egypt, the longest way round is not the shortest way home, and that was why Maham Salim's court-martial took just three minutes and a half, and the Bimbashi who judged him found even that too long for he yawned in the deserter's face as he condemned him to death. Maham Salim showed no feeling when the sentence was pronounced. His face had an apathetic look. It seemed as if it were all one to him. But when they had turned him round to march to the shed where he was to be kept, till hung like a pig at sunrise, his eyes glanced about restlessly. For even as the sentence had been pronounced a new idea had come into his mind. Over the heads of the Gippy soldiers, with their pipe stem legs, his look flashed eagerly, then a little painfully, then suddenly stayed, for it rested on the green turban of Yusef, the drunken gaffer. Yusef's eyes were almost shut, his face had the grey look of fresh-killed veal, for he had come from an awful debauch of hashish. Allah! Allah! cried Maham Salim, 
for that was the sound which always waked the torpid brain of Yusef since Wasif the camel driver's skull had crackled under his neighbor. Yusef's wide shoulders straightened back, his tongue licked his lips, his eyes stared before him, his throat was dry. He licked his lips again. Allah! He cried and ran forward. The soldiers thrust Yusef back. Maham Salim turned and whispered to the sergeant. Bakshish! He said. My gray Arab for a word with Yusef the gaffer. Malayish! Said the sergeant, and the soldiers cleared a way for Yusef. The palms of the men from Beni Suf met once, twice, thrice. They touched their lips, their breasts, their foreheads, with their hands three times. Then Maham Salim fell upon the breast of Yusef and embraced him. Doing so he whispered in his ear, In the name of Allah, tell Soda I died fighting the dervishes. So be it, in God's name, said Yusef. A safe journey to you, brother of giants. Next morning at sunrise, between two dampams stood Maham Salim, but scarce a handful of the soldiers sent to see him die laughed when the rope was thrown over his head. For his story had gone abroad, and it was said that he was mad, none but a madman would throw away his life for a fellow woman. And was it not written that a madman was one beloved of Allah, who had taken his spirit up into heaven, leaving only the disordered body behind? If, at the last moment, Maham Salim had but cried out, I am mad, with my eyes I have seen God, no man would have touched the rope that hanged him up that day. But according to the sacred custom, he only asked for a bowl of water, drank it, said, Allah, and bowed his head three times towards Mecca, and bowed his head no more. Before another quarter was added to the moon, Yusef, the drunken gaffer, at the door of Soda's hut in Beni Suf, told old Fatima the most wonderful tale, how Maham Salim had died on his sheepskin, having killed ten dervishes with his own hand, and that a whole regiment had attended his funeral. This is to the credit of Yusef's account, that the last half of his statement was no lie. On the reef of Norman's woe. It was the schooner Hesperus that sailed the wintry sea, and the skipper had taken his little daughter to bear him company. Such was the wreck of the Hesperus in the midnight and the snow. Christ save us all from a death like this, on the reef of Norman's woe. Only it was not the schooner Hesperus, and she did not sail the wintry sea. It was the stern-wheeled Tabamanhotep, which churned her way up and down the Nile, scraping over sandbanks, butting the shores with gaiety embarrassing, for it was the time of cholera, just before the annual rise of the Nile. Fielding Bay, the skipper, had not taken his little daughter, for he had none, but he had taken little Dickie Donovan, who had been in at least three departments of the government, with advantage to all. Dickie was dining with Fielding at the Turf Club when a telegram came saying that cholera had appeared at a certain village on the Nile. Fielding had dreaded this, had tried to make preparation for it, had begged of the government this reform and that, to no purpose. He knew that the saving of the country from an epidemic lay with his handful of Englishmen and the faithful native officials, but chiefly with the Englishmen. He was prepared only as a forlorn hope is prepared, with energy, with personal courage, with knowledge, and never were these more needed. With the telegram in his hand, he thought of his few English assistants, and sighed, for the game they would play was the game of Hercules and death over the body of Alcestis. Dickie noted the sigh, read the telegram, drank another glass of claret, lighted a cigarette, drew his coffee to him, and said, The Khedive is away, I'm off duty, 
take me. Fielding looked surprised, yet with an eye of hope. If there was one man in Egypt who could do useful work in the business, it was little Dickie Donovan, who had a way with natives such as no man ever had in Egypt, who knew no fear of anything mortal, who was as tireless as a beaver, as keen-minded as a lynx's sharp-eyed. It was said to Dickie's discredit that he had no heart, but Fielding knew better. When Dickie offered himself now, Fielding said, almost feverishly, But dear old D, you don't see. Don't I? Well then. What are the blessings of the sight? Oh, tell your poor blind boy. What Fielding told him did not alter his intention, nor was it Fielding's wish that it should, though he felt it right to warn the little man what sort of thing was in store for them. As if I don't know, old Limeburner, answered Dickie coolly. In an hour they were on the Amenhotep, and in two hours they were on the way, a floating hospital, to the infected district of Calamon. There the troubles began. It wasn't the heat, and it wasn't the work, and it wasn't the everlasting care of the sick, it was the ceaseless hunt for the disease-stricken, the still, tireless opposition of the natives, the remorseless deception, the hopeless struggle against the covert odds. With nothing behind, no support from the government, no adequate supplies, few capable men, and all the time the dead, inert, dust-powdered air, the offices of policemen, doctor, apothecary, even undertaker and gravedigger, to perform, and the endless weeks of it all. A handful of good men under two leaders of nerve, conscience and ability, to fight an invisible enemy, which, gaining headway, would destroy its scores of thousands. At the end of the first two months Fielding Bay became hopeless. We can't throttle it, he said to Dickie Donovan. They don't give us the ghost of a chance. Today I found a dead and hid in an oven under a heap of flour to be used for tomorrow's baking. I found another doubled up in a cupboard, and another under a pile of dura which will be ground into flour. With twenty gaffers I beat five cane in dura fields this morning, said Dickie. Found three cases. They'd been taken out of the village during the night. Bad ones? So-so. They'll be worse before they're better. That was my morning's flutter. This afternoon I found the huts these gentlemen call their homes. I knocked holes in the roofs per usual, burned everything that wasn't wood, let in the light o' heaven, and splashed about lime wash and perchloride. That's my days taught up. Any particular trouble? He added, eyeing Fielding closely. Fielding fretfully jerked his foot on the floor, and lighted his pipe, the first that day. Heaps. I've put the barber in prison, and given the seraph twenty lashes for certifying that the death of the son of the Mamur was El Ada, the ordinary. It was one of the worst cases I've ever seen. He fell ill at ten and was dead at two, the permis dehumation was given at four, and the usual thing occurred, the body washers got the bedding and clothing, and the others the coverlet. God only knows who'll wear that clothing, who'll sleep in that bed. If the Lord would only send them sense, we'd supply sublimate solution, douche and spray, and zinc for their little long boxes of bones. Mused Dickie, his eyes half shut, as he turned over in his hands some scarabs a place-hunting official had brought him that day. Well, that isn't all, he added, with a quick upward glance and a quizzical smile. His eyes, however, as they fell on Fielding's, softened in a peculiar way, and a troubled look flashed through them, for Fielding's face was drawn and cold, though the eyes were feverish, and a bright spot burned on his high cheekbones. No, it isn't all, Dickie. 
The devil's in the whole business. Steady, sullen opposition meets us at every hand. Norman's been here, rode over from Abdullah, twenty-five miles. A report's going through the native villages, started at Abdullah, that our sanitary agents are throwing yellow handkerchiefs in the faces of those they're going to isolate. That's Hosekai Bay's yellow handkerchief. He's a good man, but he blows his nose too much, and blows it with a flourish. Has Norman gone back? No, I've made him lie down in my cabin. He says he can't sleep, says he can only work. He looks ten years older. Abdullah's an awful place, and it's a heavy district. The Mamur there's a scoundrel. He has influenced the whole district against Norman and our men. Norman, you know what an Alexander Hannibal baby it is. All the head of him good for the best sort of work anywhere. All the fat heart of him dripping sentiment. Gave a youngster a comfort the other day. By some infernal accident the child fell ill two days afterwards. It had been sucking its father's old shoe, and Norman just saved its life by the skin of his teeth. If the child had died, there'd have been a riot probably. As it is, there's talk that we're scattering poison sweetmeats to spread the disease. He's done a plucky thing, though. He paused. Dicky looked up inquiringly, and Fielding continued. There's a fellow called Mustafa Kali a hanger-on of the muter of the province. He spread a report that this business was only a scare got up by us, that we poisoned the people and buried them alive. What does Norman do? He promptly arrests him, takes him to the muter, and says that the brute must be punished or he'll carry the matter to the Khedive. Here's to you, Mr. Norman, said Dicky, with a little laugh. What does the muter do? Doesn't know what to do. He tells Norman to say to me that if he puts the fellow in prison there'll be a riot, for they'll make a martyr of him. If he finds him it won't improve matters. So he asks me to name a punishment which will suit our case. He promises to give it his most distinguished consideration. And what's your particular poison for him? asked Dickie, with his eyes on the cholera hospital a few hundred yards away. I don't know. If he's punished in the ordinary way it will only make matters worse as the muter says. Something's needed that will play our game and turn the tables on the reptile too. A sort of bite himself with his own fangs, eh? Dickie seemed only idly watching the moving figures by the hospital. Yes, but what is it? I can't inoculate him with bacilli. That's what'd do the work, I fancy. Pocket your fancy, Fielding, answered Dickie. Let me have a throw. Go on. If you can't hit it off, it's no good for my head doesn't think these days, it only sees and hears and burns. Dickie eyed Fielding keenly, and then, pouring out some whiskey for himself, put the bottle on the floor beside him, casually as it were. Then he said, with his girlish laugh, not quite so girlish these days, I've got his sentence pat, it'll meet the case, or you may say, Cassio, never more be officer of mine. He drew over a piece of paper lying on the piano for there was a piano on the Amenhotep, and with what seemed an audacious levity Fielding played in those rare moments when they were not working or sleeping, and Fielding could really play. As Dickey wrote he read aloud in a kind of legal monotone. The citizen Mustafa Kali having asserted that there is no cholera, and circulated various false statements concerning the treatment of patients, is hereby appointed as hospital assistant for three months, in the cholera hospital of Kalamount, that he may have opportunity of correcting his opinions. Signed E.B.N. Ben-Hari, Muter of Abdullah. Fielding lay back and laughed, 
the first laugh on his lips for a fortnight. He laughed till his dry, fevered lips took on a natural moisture, and he said at last, You've pulled it off, D. That's masterly. You and Norman have the only brains in this show. I get worse every day. I do, upon my soul. There was a curious anxious look in Dickie's eyes, but he only said, You like it? Think it fills the bill, eh? If the muter doesn't pass the sentence I'll shut up shop. He leaned over anxiously to Dickie and gripped his arm. I tell you this pressure of opposition has got to be removed, or we'll never get this beast of an epidemic under, but we'll go under instead, my boy. Oh, we're doing all right, Dickie answered, with only apparent carelessness. We've got inspection of the trains, we've got some sort of command of the foreshores, we've got the water changed in the mosques, we've closed the fountains, we've stopped the markets, we've put sublimate pasha and lime wash effendi on the warpath, and— and the natives believe in lighted tar barrels and accordant sanitaire. No, D, things must take a turn, or the game's lost and we'll go with it. Success is the only thing that'll save their lives, and ours. We couldn't stand failure in this. A man can walk to the gates of hell to do the hardest trick, and he'll come back one great blister and live, if he's done the thing he set out for. But if he doesn't do it, he falls into the furnace. He never comes back. Dicky. Things must be pulled our way, or we go to deep damnation. Dickie turned a little pale, for there was high nervous excitement in Fielding's words, and for a moment he found it hard to speak. He was about to say something, however, when Fielding continued. Norman there. He pointed to the deck cabin. Norman's the same. He says it's do or die, and he looks it. It isn't like a few fellows besieged by a host. For in that case you wait to die and you fight to the last, and you only have your own lives. But this is different. We're fighting to save these people from themselves, and this slow, quiet, deadly work, day in, day out, in the sickening sun and smell fall. The awful smell in the air, it kills in the end, if you don't pull your game off. You know it's true. His eyes had an eager, almost prayerful look. He was like a child in his simple earnestness. His fingers moved over the maps on the table in which were little red and white and yellow flags, the white flags to mark the towns and villages where they had mastered the disease, the red flags to mark the new ones attacked, the yellow to indicate those where the disease was raging. His fingers touched one of the flags, and he looked down. C.D., here are two new places attacked today. I must ride over to Abdullah when Norman goes. It's all so hopeless. Things will take a turn. Rejoined Dickie, with a forced gaiety. You needn't ride over to Abdullah. I'll go with Norman, and what's more I'll come back here with Mustafa Kali. You'll go to the muter? asked Fielding eagerly. He seemed to set so much store by this particular business. I'll bring the muter too, if there's any trouble, said Dickie grimly, though it is possible he did not mean what he said. Two hours later Fielding, Dickie, and Norman were in conference, extending their plans of campaign. Fielding and Norman were eager and nervous, and their hands and faces seemed to have taken on the arid nature of the desert. Before they sat down Dickie had put the bottle of whiskey out of easy reach, for Fielding, under ordinary circumstances the most abstemious of men, had lately, in his great fatigue and overstrain, unconsciously emptied his glass more often than was wise for a campaign of long endurance. Dickie noticed now, as they sat round the table, 
that Norman's hand went to the coffee pot as Fielding's had gone to his glass. What struck him as odd also was that Fielding seemed to have caught something of Norman's manner. There was the same fever in the eyes, though Norman's face was more worn and the eyes more sunken. He looked like a man that was haunted. There was, too, a certain air of helplessness about him, a primitive intensity almost painful. Dickie saw Fielding respond to this in a curious way. It was the kind of fever that passes quickly from brain to brain when there is not sound bodily health commanded by a cool intelligence to insulate it. Fielding had done the work of four men for over two months, and like most large men, his nerves had given in before Dickie's, who had done six men's work at least, and by his power of organization and his labor-saving intelligence, conserved the work of another fifty. The three were sitting silent, having arranged certain measures, when Norman sprang to his feet excitedly and struck the table with his hand. It's no use, sir, he said to Fielding. I'll have to go. I'm no good. I neglect my duty. I was to be back at Abdullah at five. I forgot all about it. A most important thing. A load of fesic was landed at Minkari, five miles beyond Abdullah. We've prohibited fesic. I was going to seize it. It's no good. It's all so hopeless here. Dickie knew now that the beginning of the end had come for Norman. There were only two things to do, get him away shooting somewhere, or humor him here. But there was no chance for shooting till things got very much better. The authorities in Cairo would never understand, and the babbling social military folk would say that they had calmly gone shooting while pretending to stay the cholera epidemic. It wouldn't be possible to explain that Norman was in a bad way and that it was done to give him half a chance of life. Fielding also ought to have a few days clear away from this constant pressure and fighting, and the sounds and the smells of death, but it could not be yet. Therefore, to humor them both was the only thing, and Norman's was the worst case. After all, they had got a system of sanitary supervision, they had the disease by the throat, and even in Cairo the administration was waking up a little. The crisis would soon pass perhaps, if a riot could be stayed and the natives give up their awful fictions of yellow handkerchiefs, poisoned sweetmeats, deadly lime wash, and all such nonsense. So Dickie said now, All right, Norman, come along. You'll seize that fesic, and I'll bring back Mustafa Kali. We'll work him as he has never worked in his life. He'll be a living object lesson. We'll have all Upper Egypt on the banks of the Nile waiting to see what happens to Mustafa. Dickie laughed and Fielding responded feebly, but Norman was looking at the hospital with a look too bright for joy, too intense for despair. I found ten in a corner of a cane field yesterday, he said dreamily. Four were dead, and the others had taken the dead men's smocks as covering. He shuddered. I see nothing but lime wash, smell nothing but carbolic. It's got into my head. Look here, old man, I can't stand it. I'm no use he added pathetically to Fielding. You're right enough, if you'll not take yourself so seriously, said Dickie jauntily. You mustn't try to say, alone I did it, come along. Fill your tobacco pouch. There are the horses. I'm ready. He turned to Fielding. It's going to be a stiff ride, Fielding. But I'll do it in twenty-four hours, and bring Mustafa Kali too, for a consideration. He paused, and Fielding said, with an attempt at playfulness. Name your price. That you play for me, when I get back, 
the overture of Tannhauser. Play it, mind, no tuning up sort of thing, like last Sunday's performance. Practice it, my son. Is it a bargain? I'm not going to work for nothing a day. He watched the effect of his words anxiously, for he saw how needful it was to divert Fielding's mind in the midst of all this. Plague, pestilence, and famine. For days Fielding had not touched the piano, the piano which Mrs. Henshaw, widow of Henshaw of the Buffs, had insisted on his taking with him a year before, saying that it would be a cure for loneliness when away from her. During the first of these black days Fielding had played intermittently for a few moments at a time, and Dickie had noticed that after playing he seemed in better spirits. But lately the disease of a ceaseless unrest, of constant sleepless work, was on him. He had not played for near a week, saying, in response to Dickie's urging, that there was no time for music. And Dickie knew that presently there would be no time to eat, and then no time to sleep, and then, the worst. Dickie had pinned his faith and his friendship to Fielding, and he saw no reason why he should lose his friend because Madame Cholera was stalking the native villages, driving the fellaheen before her like sheep to the slaughter. Is it a bargain? he added, as Fielding did not at once reply. If Fielding would but play it would take the strain off his mind at times. All right, D. I'll see what I can do with it, said Fielding, and with a nod turned to the map with the little red and white and yellow flags, and began to study it. He did not notice that one of his crew abaft near the wheel was watching him closely, while creeping along the railing on the pretense of cleaning it. Fielding was absorbed in making notes upon a piece of paper and moving the little flags about. Now he lit a cigar and began walking up and down the deck. The Arab disappeared, but a few minutes afterwards returned. The deck was empty. Fielding had ridden away to the village. The map was still on the table. With a frightened face the Arab peered at it, then going to the side he called down softly, and there came up from the lower deck a copt, the seraph of the village, who could read English fairly. The Arab pointed to the map, and the copt approached cautiously. A few feet away he tried to read what was on the map, but, unable to do so, drew closer, pale-faced and knock-kneed, and stared at the map and the little flags. An instant after he drew back, and turned to the Arab. May God burn his eyes! He sends the death to the village by moving the flags. May God change him into a dog to be beaten to death! The red is to begin, the white flag is for more death, the yellow is for enough. See, may God cut off his hand. He has moved the white flag to our village. He pointed in a trembling fear, half real, half assumed, for he was of a nation of liars. During the next half hour at least a dozen Arabs came to look at the map, but they disappeared like rats in a hole when, near midnight, Fielding's tall form appeared on the bank above. It was counted to him as a devil's incantation, the music that he played that night, remembering his promise to Dickie Donovan. It was music through which breathed the desperate, troubled, aching heart and tortured mind of an overworked strong man. It cried to the night its trouble, but far over in the cholera hospital the sick heard it and turned their faces towards it eagerly. It pierced the apathy of the dying. It did more, for it gave Fielding five hours sleep that night, and though he waked to see one of his own crew dead on the bank, he tackled the day's labor with more hope than he had had for a fortnight. As the day wore on, however, his spirits fell, for on every hand was suspicion, unrest, and opposition, and his native assistants went sluggishly about their work. 
It was pathetic and disheartening to see people refusing to be protected, the sick refusing to be relieved, all stricken with fear, yet inviting death by disobeying the Inglesi. Kalamon was hopeless, yet twenty-four hours earlier Fielding had fancied there was a little light in the darkness. That night Fielding's music gave him but two hours sleep, and he had to begin the day on a brandy and soda. Wherever he went open resistance blocked his way, hisses and mutterings followed him, the sick were hid in all sorts of places, and two of his assistants deserted before noon. Things looked ominous enough, and at five o'clock he made up his mind that Egypt would be overrun with cholera, and that he should probably have to defend himself and the Amenhotep from rioters, for the native police would be useless. But at five o'clock Dickie Donovan came in a boat, and with him Mustafa Kali under a native guard of four men. The muter's sense of humor had been touched, and this sense of humor probably saved the muter from trouble, for it played Dickie's game for him. Mustafa Kali had been sentenced to serve in the cholera hospital of Kalamount, that he might be cured of his unbelief. At first he had taken his fate hardly, but Dickie had taunted him and then had suggested that a man whose conscience was clear and convictions good would carry a high head in trouble. Dickie challenged him to prove his libels by probing the business to the bottom, like a true scientist. All the way from Abdullah Dickie talked to him so, and at last the only answer Mustafa Kali would make was, Malayish no matter. Mustafa Kali pricked up his ears with hope as he saw the sullen crowds from Kalamam gathering on the shore to watch his deportation to the cholera hospital, and, as he stepped from the kiasa, he called out loudly, They are all dogs and sons of dogs and dogs were their grandsires. No good is in a dog the offspring of a dog. Whenever these dogs scratch the ground the dust of poison is in the air, and we die. You are impolite, Mustafa Kali, said Dickie coolly, and offered him a cigarette. The next three days were the darkest in Dickie Donovan's career. On the first day there came word that Norman, overwrought, had shot himself. On the next, Mustafa Kali in a fit of anger threw a native policeman into the river, and when his head appeared struck it with a barge pole, and the man sank to rise no more. The three remaining policemen, two of whom were Sudanese, and true to Dickie, bound him and shut him up in a hut. When that evening Fielding refused to play, Dickie knew that Norman's fate had taken hold of him, and that he must watch his friend every minute, that awful vigilance which kills the watcher in the end. Dickie said to himself more than once that day, Christ save us all from a death like this, on the reef of Norman's woe. But it was not Dickie who saved Fielding. On the third day the long-deferred riot broke out. The Copt and the Arab had spread the report that Fielding brought death to the villages by moving the little flags on his map. The populace rose. Fielding was busy with the map at the dreaded moment that hundreds of the villagers appeared upon the bank and rushed the Amenhotep. Fielding and Dickie were both armed, but Fielding would not fire until he saw that his own crew had joined the rioters on the bank. Then, amid a shower of missiles, he shot the Arab who had first spread the report about the map and the flags. Now Dickie and he were joined by Hallgate, the Yorkshire engineer of the Amenhotep, and together the three tried to hold the boat. Every native had left them. They were obliged to retreat aft to the deck cabin. Placing their backs against it, they prepared to die hard. No one could reach them from behind, at least. It was an unequal fight. All three had received slight wounds, but the bloodletting did them all good. Fielding was once more himself, 
nervous anxiety, unrest had gone from him. He was as cool as a cucumber. He would not go shipwreck now. On the reef of Norman's Woe, here was a better sort of death. No men ever faced it with quieter minds than did the three. Every instant brought it nearer. All at once there was a cry and a stampede in the rear of the attacking natives. The crowd suddenly parted like two waves, and retreated, and Mustafa Kali, almost naked, and supported by a stolid Sudanese, stood before the three. He was pallid, his hands and brow were dripping sweat, and there was a look of death in his eyes. I have cholera, Effendi, he cried. Take me to Abdullah to die, then I may be buried with my people and from mine own house. Is it not poison? asked Fielding grimly, yet seeing now a ray of hope in the sickening business. It is cholera, Effendi. Take me home to die. Very well. Tell the people so, and I will take you home, and I will bury you with your fathers, said Fielding. Mustafa Kali turned slowly. I am sick of cholera, he said as loudly as he could to the awe-stricken crowd. May God not cool my resting place if it be not so. Tell the people to go to their homes and obey us, said Dicky, putting away his pistol. These be good men, I have seen with mine own eyes, said Mustafa hoarsely to the crowd. It is for your good they do all. Have I not seen? Let God fill both my hands with dust if it be not so. God has stricken me, and behold I give myself into the hands of the Inglesi, for I believe. He would have fallen to the ground. But Dicky and the Sudanese caught him and carried him down to the bank, while the crowd scuttled from the boat, and Fielding made ready to bear the dying man to Abdullah, a race against death. Fielding brought Mustafa Kali to Abdullah in time to die there, and buried him with his fathers, and Dicky stayed behind to cleanse Kalamon with perchloride and lime wash. The story went abroad and traveled fast, and the words of Mustafa Kali, oft repeated, became as the speech of a holy man and the people no longer hid their dead, but brought them to the Amenhotep. This was the beginning of better things, the disease was stayed. And for all the things that these men did, Fielding Bay and Donovan Pasha, they got naught but an Egyptian ribbon to wear on the breast and a labored censure from the administration for overrunning the budget allowance. Dicky, however, seemed satisfied, for Fielding's little bark of life had not gone down. On the reef of Norman's Woe, Mrs. Henshaw felt so also when she was told all, and she disconcerted Dicky by bursting into tears. Why those tears? said Dicky to Fielding afterwards. I wasn't eloquent. Glossary. I wa effendi, yeah, noble sir. Allah God. Allah Hali am Allah Hali, a sing-song of river workers. Allah Karim, God is bountiful. Al Shu Akbar, God is most great. Ailmeh. Female professional singers antichi, antiquities. Bakshish, tip, doser, bribe. Balas, earthen vessel for carrying water. Basha, pasha. Bursam, grass. Bimbashi, major. Bisharin, a native tribe. Bismillah, in the name of God. Boab, a doorkeeper. Corve, forced labor. Dahabia, a Nile houseboat with large latine sails. Darabaka, a drum made of a skin stretched over an earthenware funnel. Dosh, literally, treading. A ceremony performed on the return of the holy carpet from Mecca. Dura maze. Effendina, highness. El Ada, the ordinary. 
El Aza, the Arab University at Cairo. Fantasia, celebration with music, dancing, and processions. Farshut, the name of a native tribe. Fatiha, the opening chapter of the Quran, recited at weddings, etc. Fedan, the most common measure of land, a little less than an acre. Also dried hay. Fela Plu. Felahin, the Egyptian peasant. Felucca, a small boat, propelled by oars or sails. Fesic, salted fish. Gaffers, humble village officials. Godzi, the tribe of public dancing girls. A female of this tribe is called Gazia, and a man, Gazi. But the plural Gawazi is generally understood as applying to the female. Gaima, the Mohammedan Sunday. Gippi, colloquial name for an Egyptian soldier. Gola, porous water jar of Nile mud. Hakim, doctor. Hanudi, funeral attendants. Harikari, an oriental form of suicide. Hashish, leaves of hemp. Inshallah, God willing. Jibba, long coat or smock, worn by dervishes. Kavas, an orderly. Kamenja, a coconut fiddle. Kamsin, a hot wind of Egypt and the Sudan. Khedive, the title granted in 1867 by the Sultan of Turkey to the ruler of Egypt. Kiasa, small boat. Kawaga, gentleman. Quran, the scriptures of the Mohammedans. Kurbash, a stick, a whip. La ilaha illallah, there is no god but God. Mafish, nothing. Magnoon, fool. Malayish, no matter. Mamur, a magistrate. Mankala, a game. Mastaba, a bench. Mejidiya, a Turkish order. Merkaz district. Maghassels, washers of the dead. Mufetish, high steward. Muter, a governor of a mutary or province. Muezzin, the sheikh of the mosque who calls to prayer. Mushrabi, lattice window. Nabut, quarterstaff. Nargala, the oriental tobacco pipe. Niharekakum said, greeting to you. Anda, the head of a village. Worcester, one of the best sort. Ramadan, the Mohammedan season of fasting. Reese, pilot. Sadat el-Basha, excellency. Sayas, groom. Sakia, Persian waterwheel. Salam, a salutation of the east, an obeisance, performed by bowing very low and placing the right palm on the forehead and on the breast. Seraf, an accountant. Shadaf, bucket and pole used by natives for lifting water. Shar, a reciter. The singular of Shoara, properly signifying a poet. Sheikh al-Belaid, head of a village. Shintian, very wide trousers, worn by the women of the middle and higher orders. Sit, the lady. Tarbush, fez or native turban. Tara, a veil for the head. Ulama, learned men. Wailed, a boy. Wikiel, a deputy. Wheelie, a favorite of heaven, colloquially a saint. Yashmak, a veil for the lower part of the face. Yelek, a long vest or smock worn over the shirt and shintian. Zariba, a palisade. E-text editor's bookmarks. A look too bright for joy, too intense for despair his gift for lying was inexpressible one favor is always the promise of another.